you know, when we talk about hostage negotiation and um, how its 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 cousin or its brother is de escalation of force, could you talk about just some just like give us some words that can de escalate a situation? And all cops know this because they deal with it all the time. But yet, some cops are better than others, and some are not good at it. But yeah. as a hostage teacher, as a hostage negotiator, just to tell me some words that can calm, can you know calm down a situation a little bit. It's, I think it's it's not so much the words, Bill, or that part of it. You know, uh, you have to choose your words carefully, but it's more your tone of voice. Your tone indicates your attitude. So I can say something to you in one fashion, very aggressively, and you're going to take it in one way. Um, why'd you do that, Bill? All right. Or I can say, hey, Bill, why did that happen? Can you tell me how that happened? And it's a different approach. Well, pretty much the same words. But you almost sound like a therapist. Because like I, I know my father-in-law always says to my wife when he's having an argument with her, how does that make you feel? And then, you know, you want to strangle him. Because <laughs> you know what he's doing, you know? It doesn't work with the wife. Let me tell you that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Don't put that house in negotiation. <laughs> oh, yeah, she must oh, call you on that all the time. Oh, my gosh. But but I teach something called the, the three E's. Three E's are, um, first, it's um, ethics. And I, I do uh, de-escalation training too. In fact, I was uh, I was asked to uh, do the uh, the 1,000 person police department in Jersey City by Director uh, Jim Shea, who was the brother. Yeah, he was on the NYPD. Yeah. Yeah, of Commissioner Dermot Shea. He's the uh, director, and I had the good fortune that he would that he asked me years ago, and we were both still working in NYPD, if he can come to my class. So I have a uh, I have a one star chief asking a lieutenant if he can come to my class. Hey, that's great, man. Yeah. So, uh, I know my politics, of course, Chief, I'd love to have you, but uh, it was a two-week course, and he bought into those principles, you know, that when you can talk and de-escalate, that's the preferred method, you know. So uh, he, he went... Well, Jack, when you said the three E's, you know what I immediately thought of? Um, evidence and danger escape. Remember that? That's go. the three reasons for a, a search warrant, right? That was the original... I have these acronyms imprinted on my brain. From, and you know what I always think about? Niatwi. Remember, remember that? The report writing. Yeah, when, where, who, what, how, and why could I used to teach that people like I don't get it. I go, some idiot put the last letter of the word, not the first. Right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, <laughs> I, teach that, I teach that also. I don't, I don't use that acronym, but it's about uh, you know open-ended questions, and those are the open-ended questions: who, what, when, where, why. That that's the uh, tools of a inter uh, interviewer interrogator: open-ended questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's closing questions and so on. But um, the three E's real quickly, uh, just to finish the thought, was um, is ethics. So are you ethical, uh, forthright, and truthful when speaking to somebody? The problem with trying to lie to somebody, and some cops get themselves in trouble with this sometimes, uh, the main problem is that you never know what information the other individual has available to them. Exactly. And you come along trying to sell a bill of goods, and the fact is they know better. Bill, what would happen, do you think, if I got caught in a lie after five hours of intensive negotiations? Well, I just lost those five hours. You're done, it? yeah. Oh, it's just like an investigator telling a perp, "We found your prints in in the crime scene," and if he, he knows he wasn't there, you just lied because I wasn't even in the crime scene, and you lost the whole thing. Yeah, you lose all credibility. Yeah. Second E is ego, but in this case, it's ego deflation. You know, sometimes uh, police work seduces us into believing that we are more than we are, and we're not, and uh, we are seduced into a bigger ego. So it's about being aware of that and when interacting with people as a police officer. Right. And deflating that. And say, hey, what's going on? My name is Jeff. What happened to me? Let's figure it out together. 
as opposed to I'm the cop, you're not, so you better right. listen to me. And that's not going to win friends or influence people for sure, right? And then the, uh, the third E is, we spoke about it already, empathy. Trying to put yourself in, in another person's shoes. And, and uh, again, you know, I, I asked a question at the beginning of each of my classes, whether it's a two-day de-escalation class or the five-day hostage negotiation class, I teach the advanced class as well. I asked a question the first morning, who in the class has never had a problem in their life? Please raise your hand. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I feel no one can raise their hand. And, and then the Pope, then the Pope shows up. And the Pope, <laughs> I think if you look hard enough, you'll find dirt yeah, in the right. himself, right? If you look hard enough. But um, yeah, and, and that sets the tone for the rest of the training. So they can understand that, well, they too have had problems. So maybe now when they approach somebody with problems who's in crisis, they can have some empathy and understanding of what, what they might be going through. And it just eases the path. So. And so I'm sure that there's some people that are better hostage negotiators than others. There's something in themselves that uh, make them better at it. Maybe they're better empathizers. You know, maybe they can come down to the level of the person they're talking to easier than someone else. You know, look, there's just like in, in uh, detective work uh, investigation, there's some people that are great interviewers and interrogators and there's others that are just okay. Or, you yeah. know, when you yeah. get, you know, when you get Jack the Ripper, you want your very best <laughs> interviewer going in the box with him, you know, because you're only going to get one shot at him, you know? So what I would do when I was selecting negotiators, um, uh, and I, you know, when I left, by the time I left, I mean, 14 years of doing that work, uh, I had brought everybody onto that team. I had a team of about uh, 125 people. It's now up to about 150 people, I understand, negotiated throughout the five boroughs. But I, I was trying to be very selective. And a lot of them, um, I, would, I would always ask the question, why do you, would you like to become a hospital negotiator? I actually had one guy, come, I'll never forget, came in from the, uh, the summertime and he worked in a plainclothes unit and he comes in wearing construction boots, shorts, and a t-shirt. So I said, yeah, I gotta ask you, you know, so you're coming in for an interview in the tech bureau for a very prestigious position. Why didn't you wear a suit? Because ah, this is my uh, my street clothes. I, you know, I was working when I came, so I wanted to blend. You know, we want to blend. So, ah, okay. So of course he didn't get onto the team. Right. He didn't care enough about selling himself to me, so he didn't get onto the team. But I would try to be very selective because it's a very critical position that they're putting them into. A life and death situations. Somebody would have gone to their head, perhaps, you know. And I would always ask the question, why do you want to become a negotiator? And some of them tying into your you know, your question, why some might be better than others, because some of them have life stories, you know, very compassionate life stories. One I can yeah. talk about, because he speaks about it publicly, that when they have a detective now retired, Matt Hickey. Matt Hickey, at one point, was one of those guys. Well, wow. uh, he, he sought help through Popper at the time, and uh, after about uh, maybe less than a year, made an amazing comeback, and they got his gun and shield back. Wow. Now he's the uh, He's, he's, I, he would speak at all the hostage conferences. Uh, he'd go out there and talk to anybody who wants to talk about it, just to demonstrate as a living example that people can't come back from their troubles. You know, we, we talk about that a lot, or we've talked about it a lot on uh, Police Off the Cuff. In fact, we have a Dr. Washkel, who is like a um, suicide expert, you know, and he talks about, you know, wellness and taking care of yourself and that type of thing. And, you know, we also acknowledge, I think, that if you do 20 years, 25, 30 years, 34 years on this job, 
you're going to have a level of PTSD. And that's irrefutable. But the, the job has to accept that as part of the job and not be looking to put a cop, take his guns away and put them in a loony bin, you know, because that's part of this, the horrible things you see, the horrible situations you put in. You're going to have a level of PTSD. Yeah. In 2000, uh, 2018, we had 10 of our officers commit suicide. Uh, two of them, and, and you would think uh, the statistics show usually it's at the lower range structure and, and they have less time on the job. But two of them, um, let's mention their name, Chief Steve Silks. Yeah, I remember that. Nine years on the job. And um, Detective Joe Calabrese had 37 years on the job. Right. Two days apart. Two days apart. So, um, you know, it's not it's not just the, the younger officers that are getting involved with this. It's, it's a, it has to do with life issues that really can't be resolved that uh, they do not want to go out there and put themselves out there to talk about it because they feel there's a stigma attached to it. Wrong, absolutely wrong. But I think the job has come, our job has come a long way. I and think the job has to keep doing a better job at it. Oh, I, I don't think they can just say, hey, oh, we, we did this. We No, you got to keep pushing. You got to do a much, much better job, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, you know, it's, it, it's a job that has a very, very high rate of suicide, yeah, yeah. a very, very high rate of stress, a very, very high rate of alcoholism, a very, very high rate of divorce, you know? And uh, look, I'm still married to the same woman 32 years, 33 years. Not that I want to be on the side of a bus as the model of, <laughs> you know, but, you know, there's ways that certain people learn how to deal with stress and it works for them. And that's, I think it worked yeah. for me, you know, how yeah. I dealt with it. Yeah, it's how you try to manage your life, you know, and um, there's always a better way. Hopefully. Well, Jack, you could go home and you, you have a good family, you have a good wife, you go home and you're happy at home. Some people don't have that. You know, they go, the job becomes their whole life and they go home and they have no one to go home to, you know, and uh, that that could be a problem, you know. Yeah, and there might be multiple reasons as to why someone can say Oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but it's no, for no, sure. You know, Jack, you know what I'd like to touch upon, too, because, uh, um, of course, our listeners would love so, some of the biggest jobs. And, and I, you, you have the one here. And I, I know Mike Ahern from ah. the 19th Precinct. What, what a great guy. And what a horrendous, horrendous situation that was. And you, you want to talk about that situation? I do. Um, Mike, retired detective now, first grade, uh, Michael Ahern. Um, long-time detective. In fact, he spent his entire career in the 19th precinct as a police officer in anti-crime. Then he got up to the detective squad, and he spent his entire career in the 19th. And uh, while he was a detective there, he gets a, a case that uh, a woman comes in to the station house, referred up to the detective squad. He, he winds up catching the case, and she was complaining about her estranged husband. Uh, that he, uh, you know, is abusive towards her. At one point, uh, he took a, took them hostage with a gun, you know. So it captured his attention. And um, in the interim, he, this guy, the husband, had filed a cross complaint against the wife, trying to keep the uh, daughter from him. Uh, some domestic issues going back and forth. So Mike uh, takes the woman's statement, and now he wants to go talk to the, the husband or the estranged husband who now lives in Queens, so he takes a ride out there with his partner and they find him uh, and they ask him to come to the station house so they can interview him. He's not under arrest. And he goes along with that. And Mike even goes as far as, uh, tells him, listen, I said, I see you uh, about 10 years ago, you took a, 
an arrest for, for a gun. I have to check you. Yeah, no problem. So he checks him. He doesn't have any gun on him at that point. He then, uh, he goes, all right, can I just get my jacket? So Mike says, yeah, go get your jacket. And when he gets his jacket, Mike takes his eyes off him for less than a minute, right. 30 seconds. And probably that's when he retrieves a gun that he had and hides it in his jacket. So they go off to the 19th squad. Again, he's not under arrest, so he's not really searched again. And they're interviewing him. And at one point, uh, the, 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 uh, the guy, his name is Adrian Bibovici, an Israeli guy. Uh, he asked Mike for a glass of water or a drink of water. So Mike says, yeah, sure. He goes in, he gets him a coffee cup full of water, brings it back to him. And when he comes in there, Mike describes that as uh, Adrian's face, Bibovici's face just changes becomes angry, he gets up and he had that gun now hidden in his, in his pants. And he takes out the gun, he grabs Mike by the tie and puts the gun to Mike's head. So Mike yells out right away, gun! So the rest of the squad now gets up there running towards the interrogation room where this guy Lee Rich now slams the door shut. So now they look for the, you know, the, the two-way mirror and they see Lee Rich has got gun while Mike is on the floor to Mike's head. All along, everybody thought that he had overtaken Mike and taken Mike's gun. In fact, that's how it was initially reported while right. the incident was still going on. We knew better, but the media had put it out there already. So everybody thought that it was Mike's gun, but it was not. So uh, myself and uh, Detective Sam Miller, um, also retired now, one of our negotiators, worked out of the Ninth Squad for many years. He's part of the DEA board, Detective Endowment Association. And uh, he and I wanted to be negotiators on that when we got there. Now, I don't know if anybody remembers uh, Michael O'Rooney. Michael O'Rooney uh, was the Deputy Commissioner of Public Information. Uh, Commissioner Kelly had just come back. This was in 2002, January 2002. So Commissioner Kelly first came came back. Uh, this was his second time as commissioner. Just came back and um, he tapped Michael O'Rooney, who was a CBS news reporter on television, nightly news, six o'clock news, and uh, tapped him to be the DCPI. So uh, Michael O'Rooney lived in Manhattan at the time, so he was called to the scene. I lived in Brooklyn, and this, uh, about 11 o'clock at night, I got the call, 10.30 or so, thereabouts. So um, it took me 20 minutes to get there, license island from one side of Brooklyn to the 19th Squad on 67th Street. So when I get there, uh, I'm walking up the stairs, I'm, I'm met by Chief Esposito, Chief of the, of the Department at the time, and he says to me, yeah, Jack, listen, he wants to speak to a, a reporter. Michael O'Rooney's here, we're gonna give him Michael O'Rooney. So I said, okay, chief, well, that sounds like a good idea. I said, however, chief, I got to tell you, we have to test this. You know, because we spoke about lying earlier. If we get caught in a lie, we lose credibility. Right. Forget about negotiations at that point. So my thought was, and my concern was, if, you know, we all kind of watch the same news channel every night. Some of us watch Channel 2, Channel 4, every night religiously. That's our channel, right? So my concern was, if, if Leibovici watched Channel 2 News every night at 6 o'clock, then he would know that Michael Rooney is now working for the NYPD because it got a lot of publicity, right? Right. Uh, CBS reporter, um, you know, CBS rather, CBS reporter, now Deputy Commissioner of Public Information for the New York City Police Department. So he saw the wisdom in that. He said, let me test the chief and we'll see if we can use Michael Rooney. So we went ahead and um, I said to, uh, I said to uh, uh, Lee Bavici, a hostage taker, who demanded the reporter, he also wanted some, uh, some documentation from his home. Those were his two demands. His documentation, he proved he was claiming that he was an undercover operative for the CIA, and now they were treating him unfairly, and he wanted to expose him. 
We were never able to confirm that, by the way. Even if he was, the CIA wasn't going to tell us anything. Right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't know this guy, yeah. right? Yeah. So, uh, but that, those, those were his two demands. So when I said to him, I said, listen, we have a reporter here. His name is Michael Baloney. Do you know him? He says, no, who's that? So he works for CBS. Then he says to us, I want to see his credentials. So of course, he doesn't have any credentials anymore. He doesn't work for them anymore. Right. So, but he does have an old business card that said Michael Lewis, CBS News, right? So I, I passed that under the door. So actually, we gave it to emergency service and they passed it under the door. He said, make no mistake about it. I am not a stupid man. I was in the Israeli military. I am not a stupid man. This is not press credentials. These, this card will not do. So you got to make me fast on your feet. I said to him, I said, listen, uh, he had a, he was called here. He left his house quickly. He left his credentials home. He does have his passport, however, so you can compare the two names. Right. Obviously, he couldn't print it up a business card in this short period of time. So we, we have ESU pass the passport under the door. And then he looked, he compared the two names. He said, okay, this will do. So we're able to start proceeding with the negotiations. Michael Looney comes on and he went now, um, Make no mistake about it, that hostage takers will test you. And they will test you with the, either you know, their smartphones, they'll Google your name, or in other fashions. So how Leibovici tested Michael O'Rooney, and we didn't know what he was doing at the moment, was he started reading statements to him. He goes, I want you to write down everything I say to you. And he starts reading statements to him from some of the documents that we already got. From. And about 10 minutes later, he, made, he says, all right, stop. Now tell me what I just read to you. And Michael Maloney, being the professional reporter that he was knowing shorthand, repeated almost verbatim everything that he had said. Wow. He said, okay, you will do. You are a reporter. And that's how he proceeded. So um, when we, he, he had agreed to us that once we had met his two demands, which we did, we got him these stock, we sent the, you know, um, some detectives down to his home in Queens to retrieve these you know, two big black garbage bags full of papers that he wanted, that we got them. And then uh, he wanted the reporter. So we met those demands. And after about four hours now of negotiating with him, um, time to, for him to live up to his part of the bargain, which is to let Michael go and come out and surrender. Well, now, when I bring this up to him, Sam and I bring this up to him, Sam Miller, he says, oh, no, no, no. I have more demands. I want my wife arrested. She's got marijuana in the uh, in the bedroom table. So at this point, I said, no. So the, the rule on saying no to somebody is if you must say no, sometimes you must say no, Bill. But when you do, you give a courtesy of giving an explanation as to why you're saying no. Okay. Not just saying no, because no eliminates all options. Right. But you say no for a reason. I didn't, and he, and he also wanted an Israeli, a Hebrew, excuse me, a Hebrew negotiator to read some of the documents that were written in Hebrew. I said, no, it's 4.30 in the morning. Actually, it was about 2.30 in the morning. I says, we're not going to find anybody at this point. I says, besides, CBS News has these resources. They'll get the translator for you. This will be done. And as far as the wife goes, we're not going to our house now to arrest her. We'll take a complaint from you once you're out, but we're not going to do that now. And then, uh, Sam, then Sam Miller, um, who was also of the Jewish faith and knew something about the culture, said to him, uh, hey, Adrian, didn't you say you were in the Israeli military earlier? Yes, I did. Well, that's something that you'd be very proud of, would it not? Of 
course I am. And that would suggest that the Israeli military would not take anybody who's not an honorable person. Is that true statement? Because yes, it is. Well, then an honorable person doesn't look to change agreements once they made them. You agreed to us. You made an agreement. Once you met your two demands, this would end. Now you're looking to change that. And he thought about it for a second. Because you're right. Okay, uh, Michael, I am taking out the magazine from the firearm. I'm removing the round from the chamber, putting it on the table. I'm locking the gun in the open position. It's on the table. And Michael's like, I don't believe this is happening. Yeah. But Michael, you can now arrest me. So at this point, he's, you know, you know, rams the door and, and, um, and he's taken into custody, you know. You know, I, uh, I remember, Jack, that ESU came to the 2-3 precinct, the squad, and they took the glass out of our lineup room, and I believe they shot through it to see if they could get a clean shot through that glass to kill the hostage taker. Excellent point. I'm glad you brought that up, though. So, yeah, they had never fired, never fired their uh, sniper rifles through that type of glass. It's tempered glass, so it's two-way glass, two-way mirror. Right. Well, they they didn't. They were concerned if they fired that round, the sniper round, through the through that windshield, through the uh, the glass, that it might deflect ever so slightly and maybe golf a bit hit Mike. Right, right. So they had a practice with it. So yeah, you're right. They went to the two three squad. They removed that glass. They were on their way up to the range to practice shooting for to see with the dynamics of the bullet and how it would react on that type of glass. Right. Uh, it was over before that. Thankfully, ever that, now Mike was laying on the floor of the uh, interrogation room for what, four over four hours, five wow. hours? Half hour. And the problem with it, Mike had a pancake holster on. And he, so Leibovich says, I want your gun. This is in the beginning of it. So Mike, thinking on his feet, amazing that he was able to do this. Said Mike said to himself, I know my gun works. I don't know if he did, his gun works. So I didn't want to give him my gun. So he gave some stories. Listen, I gave you my gun. I'm going to get myself a fired and all that. You know, you're not supposed to see my gun. Yeah. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to lay on my gun. I'm going to lay flat prone on the side on my gun. I can't get to it. You can't get to it. So Leibovich says, okay, Mike, I don't agree with that, but I respect you. So we'll do it that way. But I'm going to be watching you. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty impressive that Mike so the can the For Mike's survival goes to Mike Aaron. Yeah. And Mike, the way he acted, he did not try to become that macho cop and try to take him because he wouldn't have been able to beat that trigger squeeze, though. He knew that. Yeah. He made smart. But Mike says when it was over, his whole side was, was numb. He couldn't even feel himself. I'm laying like, on top of that gun. <laughs> yeah. So um, at the end of it, uh, everybody wanted to be. Commissioner Kelly was there the whole time. Chief Esposito was there the whole time. Uh, all watching, I said earlier, you're, you're on stage, watching you as you're negotiating. But you couldn't let... I didn't even think about that at all, nor did Sam. And finally, uh, at the end of it, um, uh, everybody wanted a piece of Mike Ahern. Over. Kelly wanted to talk to him. Everybody wanted to talk to him. Chief, uh, Chief Ali was there. Right. Chief Bo was there. I just popped my head and I said, hello, Mike. I'm Jack Cambry. This is Sam Miller. I'll call you in a week or two. And then settle down a little bit. Uh -huh. that, that's the only time he saw me. I saw him the whole time through the one-way mirror, but he never saw me or Sam. So a week later, I call him up. And I said, Mike, uh, I would love for you to become a hostage negotiator if you think you might be interested in doing that work. What better person than you? Yeah. And now both sides of the uh, the equation, being a hostage and being a hostage negotiator. You know? He's worth the price of admission just to go up and tell his story, right? Oh, so I, oh, I, I, I recruited him every time I did a new That's class. That's fantastic. You know, I've, see, I've seen Mike a bunch of times after that. And it seemed to me 
that he still carried that with him. You know what I mean? And probably yeah. will carry it with him the rest of his life, you know? About three or four years later, he gets a job also in Queens. Um, and when he's in there, I told you this guy, I, I'm not even sure what the case was, but the guy who he was interviewing pulls out a knife from the kitchen drawer and starts attacking, going towards him and menacing with that with that uh, knife. And Mike had to shoot and kill him. So, uh, yeah, so I, I go to visit. It was a Sunday. I go to visit him in the hospital, the Jamaica Hospital in Queens, and I say, Talk about a cloud over one's head, Mike, you know? <laughs> it might be time to retire, I think, yeah. you know, and maybe lay on a beach a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's hey, Jack, that's a that's an amazing story. And, I mean, I take off my hat off to you <laughs> and the other negotiator for doing an unbelievable job. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone, found, everyone heard about that job. I mean, obviously, that's... Probably one of the jobs you use in your teaching because it's, uh, I do. And it's it was, spectacular, you know. Yeah, that was a job he had to get right. Uh, if we were done something wrong, where he would have gotten shot and killed, God forbid, then uh, all credibility. Every time we would have been on a job, they would have whispers, "Man, that's the guy that got Mike Aaron killed." You know, so that was when we had to absolutely get right. You know, you know another thing, Jack. I take my hat off um, to Esposito because Esposito listened to you. A lot of big bosses, hey, I'm the boss, you do it, you know, and to his credit, he, a smart man, he listened to you. Yeah. And no, Chief, this is why we do it this way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, bosses that are like that, they, they, that, they're good bosses, you know, ones that are just, you know, they think because of their, the stars on their epaulets oh, yeah. that well, they, you know, oh, yeah. right, they're the supreme, right, well, yeah, that's what you teach, right, ego. That's one of the things that because they're the supreme commander because they got three or four stars on their uh, epaulets and they don't listen, you know. Excellent point. And we had a lot of jobs together where he was against some commanders and always, uh, you know, asked him, Jack, what do you think? He'd ask the ESU, you know, uh, commander, whoever it was, uh, lieutenant or whoever was there, uh, what they thought. And, uh, and we called that the think tank. And then he'd, he'd make the ultimate decision, of course. But, it would be based on information that, that he received from both parties and his own personal observations and make a, uh, an informed decision. So, yeah, Absolutely. I, love, I, love I, love I used to always say that about investigation. Sometimes big decisions on major investigations would be made out of the building. Right. And I always used to say, you should always, 100% of the time, listen to the detectives. Yeah. Not the big boss who's not, he's not, he's not there. He's getting the flavor of the investigation. He hasn't been in the box with the players. Listen yeah. to the detectives. And the detectives, 99.9% of the time are, are right. They're correct, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, the hostage team is the only unit in the entire police department that has the the, the uh, word team in its name, hostage negotiation team. So there are units, there are bureaus, there are squads, and so on. But no other unit in the whole police department has the word team in it. And that's and, and I, I like to bring that out because the team, the house negotiation team, as does many other units as well, but we operate truly as a team. And uh, we play off each other, you know, thoughts and processes and uh, that might not work because. And and that was part of it. So I was Jack to the team. I mean, they always right. back to me by calling me lieutenant, of course, but, but they knew that I was just a part of that team. Right. Ultimately, I'd make the final decision, you know, how we might proceed with the negotiation, just the negotiation part of it. Uh, of course, always running by the incident command and never doing it independently. Sure. But, um, but I was part of that 
that that team. Uh, oh, you know, Jack. That's why you're a good boss because Thank you. you don't you don't know everything, right? No. And, and I don't either. And you know something, I always believe that anyone could teach me something. I don't know everything. You, oh, you're an expert at that? Yeah. How do you do it? You know. Or same thing with detectives. Look, I don't know. What do you think? You know. And, and you have that state of mind also, point of view. That yeah, yeah I I got to listen to these guys. You know. Yeah critical i think that's critical to do that way you know uh, again and not letting ego get get in the way ego deflating your ego the ego deflation yeah. you sound like james shanahan oh <laughs> he was one of my teachers i learned so much from james uh, you know jack i don't know if you realize it but we've been talking for an over an hour and a half oh i don't and uh, yeah it's been over an hour and a half and i told you when before we sat down I, you were like a little concerned about was this going to be a Q&A? And I said, no, we're just going to have a conversation. And I feel that that's what this was. It was a conversation. And I didn't, I never thought about what I was going to ask you next. It just seemed to flow, you know? So that's when I know it was a really successful show and a successful well, interview, you know? And you know, to, the audience, to the audience, I had, I had said to Bill uh, when he first you know, asked me if I'd be willing to do this, so I'd be honored to do it. I said, "Do you think anybody's going to show up to watch it, though?" <laughs> <laughs> they're going to love. They're going to love this. I'm telling you. They're, I get. We get emails all the times of like, "Keep doing what you do," and you know, cops that are off the job, they're down in Florida, or whatever. They watch this shit. They're like, "Oh my god, I felt like I was back in you know, in the know, squad room." Time uh, you and you know, your other show uh, with both Mark, Mark the Mill. Mark just uh, you know, every time he was in headquarters, he stopped my my office to say hello. I know Mark a long time. And it's like, like cracking jokes. I think he was trying out some of his routine. Yeah, I'm sure people. he was. I'm sure he was. And I wouldn't get any work done. I'd be like, no. <laughs> so, Jack, uh, do you have any last thoughts or any parting words you'd like to say? I think, um, you know, uh, throughout any officers that are still active and watching this, uh, the key is, as I mentioned it earlier, when you go to an assignment, uh, don't have any preconceived notions about uh, who you're interacting with, but rather just respond on what is presented to you. Uh, the people may be yelling and screaming at you, but understand that it's not personal. How could it be personal? You don't know them, they don't know you, but rather, you know, they are responding to their emotion. And it's, it's your job to try to, to manage that emotion by bringing it down. You know, there's a scale that we use. When emotional levels are high, the rationality levels are low. So as police officers, we have to try to balance that out by making a more even plane by bringing the rational side up. And by doing so, by default, emotional levels go down. So it's, it's not personal and don't take it as such, but rather listen, try to understand what the problem is and be aware of your tone as we spoke about earlier. That's great, were, David. Jack, they even said that in The Godfather. It's not personal, it's business, Sonny. <laughs> Maybe that's where I got it from. <laughs> Jack, thank you so much. You, no. I just want to take one promise from you if you could i would love to have you back again another time oh my gosh it'd be an honor let's see how the race if anybody watches if they do i will be back you know something i would love to do a, a duo with you and uh shanahan you know, oh I, don't know if, I don't know if we could keep him quiet enough to, for you to talk though you know no uh, yeah he's a professional actor also i wish you if you mentioned that uh, you know i didn't even get a chance to mention yeah. that um yeah. Professional actor, uh, and, and he would do our role plays, and he would bring such a sense of realism to our role plays that you were in the moment. The, the audience, the class, was in the, in the moment. So oh, I, I just want to mention some of your showbiz stuff. Jack has been a consultant ah. on the taking of Pelham 123, Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, 
The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Life on Mars. He's been on Blue Bloods, I, I think, three times. Yeah. Unforgettable, Elementary, The Mysteries of Laura, and The Breaks. Yeah. And good. he's got an MS from John Jay. Complete the whole picture there, oh right? My God. Oh my God. You think it's going <laughs> Jack Campbell? <laughs> That's fantastic. Jack, again, thank you so much. And I'm Bill Cannon from Real Crime Stories. And this has been episode number one of 2021 with retired lieutenant and hostage commander Jack Cambria. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, sir. I know.